Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. Your gut feeling and your truth is the most important thing for you, no matter what anyone else says or what it might seem to cost you. Because giving up a relationship can be extremely difficult. Like your intuition is paramount. When we realize that we're more alike than we are different, and we realize that acceptance and passion and love really do heal like everything, it completely changes who we are. Trust your guys. Trust the feeling that comes up from your core, no matter what anyone else says. Like know how freaking brilliant you are. And the first thing that comes up from your core that feels right, that feels in alignment with you is your answer. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Dr. Corinne Louise. You can find her on Instagram and elsewhere at Dr. Corinne, all spelled out. So, Dr. Corinne is an award-winning author, speaker, and coach, and this interview has so much gold in it to help you lead a more authentic life. So Dr. Corinne was married to baseball legend Chipper Jones, and things did not end well there. There was a lot of infidelity and many other things that would cause a ton of people to give up. She was so open and so honest about this time in her life, and I know that you're going to get a ton from it. So be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and Dr. Corinne and let us know what you thought of it. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Dr. Corinne. Corinne, welcome to the show. Yes, thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, I am so excited too. You know, I've been looking for, forward to this for some time. Uh, we have so much to talk about. I'm beyond excited. So I want to jump right into it. But first, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to do this. 
Oh my gosh. Well, I've been looking forward to this since we last talked. So I just appreciate you taking the time to, to explore a little bit of things that I hope will help other people out there. Yep. You got it. So what we're going to do, I thought probably the best way to do this is we'll break it up into three parts. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the um, some of the things that you've done to achieve the things that you've achieved in your life. And maybe you can help people with that. And then I want to talk a little bit about fulfillment and some of the things that you've done to add more fulfillment in your life, probably through um, lessons like we all do. Um, and then we'll wrap with some rapid fire questions, kind of like a speed date, if that's cool. Sounds perfect. All right. So I think a good jumping off point would be to talk about where you're from, how you grew up, because I think that informs so much of who we are as adults. So you were born in Atlanta, Georgia, where we're both living right now. And growing up for you wasn't so perfect. Your biological dad wanted to give you up for adoption and your mom wouldn't let him. So he, he left. And in what ways do you think that that affected your early years? Oh, wow. You did your research. You always do, Rob. Thank you for, for diving right in. I'm like tearing up. So no, it's good. I have a lot of healing on this. I actually wrote a book called The Fatherless Daughter Project on this. So I've done so much work on it, but there are so many people that struggle with this. So I'm glad we're jumping in there. Um, yeah, my mom was married to someone that just wasn't a good match for her, my biological dad. And then she got remarried. And I was born in Atlanta, um, specifically in Decatur, Georgia. And my mom soon after, um, she got remarried and that's what spawned the adoption. And apparently it was really stressful. I was only like three to four years old. And my um, stepdad adopted me and my brother, which were from my mom's marriage. And he had another son from his first marriage. Um, He was a widower. And so we had a, a number of good years, but he, it ended up becoming a, an abusive home and he was just a, a super controlling guy and um, just a lot of inappropriate things were happening. I'll just use those words to explain um, what was going on. And, you know, it really uh, put a crack in me and there were a lot of secrets in my house. And so what was happening, and I know you've had several guests on that have had like these conservative backgrounds and we end up later finding out that the world's a much bigger place. But at the time, I was in this very evangelical conservative home that was like, you know, we were in church five days a week. My dad was the big Sunday school preacher. He was a deacon. My mom later became ordained as a pastor. She was a teacher. I was teaching Sunday school. And so we had this life where we were like buttoned up. You know, nobody was allowed to drink or smoke. You couldn't, it was church of God. You couldn't like show your shoulders. You couldn't swim with the opposite sex. It was very strict, very hard lined, very black and white. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell based on these criteria. And so you, I w- even though I learned, the beautiful thing was I learned to have a very spiritual connection. The Holy Spirit was very big in that church. So it really informed later my ability to tap into the Holy Spirit, but it also really taught fear. And so we lived in fear that like Jesus was going to show up and we were going to be left behind. So that was like always looming. And then the what was really happening with me specifically and my family is then we'd go home and there was these there were these dark things that were happening and these things that nobody knew about and you just weren't allowed to speak of it. And then we'd go and put on another mask and we'd show up at church and my mom and dad were the PTA presidents in school at in my um, school and we lived in a very pretty secure community. I lived in Tucker and I had a great support network with friends, but I learned at a very young age to silence myself and to wear a mask and to pretend. And it teaches when when children have to do that. It teaches you that your value, um, the I would say the interpretation um, on a soul level, that your value is not very high, that you're kind of a plaything, 
and that your own intuition and your own, uh, the wisdom that really is inside of you, that's really screaming to get out, but you're young and you can't go anywhere. It needs to just be stifled and you just need to go along with the flow. So it was not an ideal way to grow up, but people that grew up with me um, are, would be very surprised to hear that. It's interesting. I, I want to dig into that just a little bit. Your mom remarried, but things did not improve there. She remarried a man that was abusive to you. You felt unsafe. You went into a depression, isolated yourself. How did you find your way out of that? Yeah, you know, I didn't even realize I was depressed all of my teen years. I was, I, I cut and I didn't, nobody ever told me about it. All I knew is it brought me a sense of relief to just, I would just drag scissors down my arm and I would cry every night. And, you know, when, it, when you're in a, a situation like that, you almost, you just think it's like everyone's normal. I didn't realize it. And then, of course, I turned to um, um, alcohol and boys and, you know, so mixed in there, my mom then eventually finds out about my dad's indiscretions. He had all these affairs and she ends up leaving the home and coming down to my college dorm room as I was a senior. And at the time I'd met my next husband, I was about to get engaged. And it was like this, so much was shifting, but you asked about how I got out of the depression. So eventually I just had to leave. I had to disengage from the situation. I ended up later becoming estranged from my dad. Now I don't speak to him anymore. The, my mom's remarried to somebody amazing now. But at the time, you know, I ended up going back and doing trauma therapy work. Um, I got married very young. I just turned 22. My husband at the time was 20. And um, I just escaped. And then I just took a big dive spiritually into biblical teaching and self-help books. But the biggest thing that got me out of it was therapy, which is why I became a therapist. All right. And we're going to get into that in a second. But I have a sort of a personal question from being a dad. Um, you've, since I am a dad, I mean, you've talked about the role of dad creating a safe and loving environment for their children growing up. And you know, as a dad, I'm always conscious. I have two girls. What advice would you have for the dads that are listening that, you know, if you, if you could sort of like go back and, you know, talk to a dad, like what would you say to them to make sure, because we're men, right? And we, sometimes as a man, we're not as in touch with the female side of things, let's say. And I, you know, there are times where like I see my friends who, you know, are dads, but they have boys and they can kind of, you know, push them around on a football field. And, you know, but if I look at my daughter the wrong way, I can make that bottom lip start to quiver. And, and I'm like, what did I do? You know what I, mean? I didn't even know I did anything. So what advice would you have for dads that are listening? Oh, I love that you ask that. And, you know, I have two boys and a girl myself too. And it, it's, um, here's the thing. You don't have to get it perfect. You don't have to understand women. You don't have to somehow engage in the feminine mind and unwrap every mystery because you're never going to figure that out. Here is what is so imperative. If you can just offer her a constant reassurance that you're there and that she's secure and that she can trust you and that you're going to protect her, to me, that is everything because that's everything I did not have. Mm. Whenever I like wanted and needed something, I would go to one of the two dads and I just got shut down a lot. And I just didn't, there wasn't a feeling of safety. So, you know, I later ended up getting, you know, a doctorate and I studied education and child psychology. So we have this hierarchy of needs and food and water and air at the bottom of it. But the next is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The next need above just the survival needs is a need for security. It's like a basic, we're born wanting to feel safe. And so when we don't feel safe, there's just, it, it puts, like I was using the word, it puts a crack in you and then you turn to other coping mechanisms. So to answer your question, if there is just a feeling of safety, even if you're not getting it right, even if you don't understand, just to be there as a constant safe 
object of affection is it's it's everything because you're fundamental and this I know this sounds like a lot of pressure but but just offering that it's actually it shouldn't be that difficult like as long as she knows you're there and she knows she can curl up even if you don't understand her you are imprinting on her her value system of, of herself, her self-love, her feeling of worth, it's foundational. And then as you know or can surmise, the, her ability then later to choose boyfriends and mates will not be based on some need that was unmet, which to me is really security. And um, you know, you're, you're empowering her. You're giving her credibility. You're giving her emotions credibility, even if you don't get them. Like you're like, I hear you. You know, just to be a safe sounding board and just someone who's there. And if she comes to you and wants protection, wants you to stand up for her, that's the one thing I didn't get. Like that to me, when I see that, I'm like, rock on, Dad. Like you're so doing it, and you're letting her know that she's protected, so she's not going to look elsewhere for it. So. I hope that answers. I love knock that. That's the that's the key right there, right? Not looking elsewhere for it, because when women look elsewhere for it, or when children become women and look elsewhere for it, that's where problems start. Yeah, yeah, and then there's a, there's a disconnect, and then it's kind of insatiable because you know you have this need where you want to feel protected, but at the same time you don't feel like any, you don't feel valuable, and you don't feel like you're worth it. So you're like bouncing against this wall where you're like, help me, help me, help me. But then this other side of you is like, you're not valuable. No one was going to give it to you. So, you know, what I ended up doing and what we found when, when we wrote that book was that it's just, it becomes a push pull for people that, and it's like half of all women, it's, it's like a third to a half of all women experiences. Cause a lot of times dad's just behind his office door and he's just not present. And that communicates a lot of the same thing. And so it's, it's the presence. It's just the ongoing presence. It's the eye contact. It's the, you know, I'm here for you. Even if you're not there for everything, you're not going to be perfect, but just her knowing that you're going to be there. If she knocks on your door, if she comes to you after a heartbreak, like that security means everything. I love that. Dad's behind their office door. What a great visual. All right, let's move on a little bit and switch gears slightly. I want to talk about marriage. Let's let's talk about some lessons. You were married twice and your first marriage, you were really young, like you mentioned. It was uh, 1992. You married a really famous baseball player, certainly here in Atlanta, named Chipper Jones. You've been open about that. Uh, the marriage ended in 99. There was a a super painful divorce. He was having an affair with, uh, of all things, a Hooters waitress. Can you walk us through the lessons and the experiences that that infidelity taught you? And do you think that that infidelity, I don't know how to put this into a question, but I, I heard you mention earlier that your dad also had some indiscretions. So in some way, do you think that there was a comfort, there was a comfort around that type of man? Mm-hmm. Ding, ding, ding. Yep. See, you're a psychologist and you didn't know it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I ended up, even though, yeah, I ended up picking someone that was a lot like my dad. And yes, because I knew how to dance that dance. I knew um, it became a very abusive marriage. Um, Chipper and I, I'm actually writing a book on a lot of it right now. And, you know, I played out the dynamic that I saw growing up. Like I knew how to do chaos. And, you know, the most difficult part was that even though it was that re- that affair was widely reported, it was actually dozens of affairs, and there were dozens. Uh, it was it was just it was so big, like nobody. Again, I was living a life where I had to put this mask on, and I was living this life of illusion. And um, you know, for years, nobody knew what was going on, and I was going through. You know, even though we had money, um, nothing near what he has now. But at the time, you know, we had a, a good contract and. I, I played it out again. You know, I would go outside and I would put a mask on and I would be his wife and I would lead the Bible study. And 
Um, here's what, so you asked what I learned. So what I kept doing, um, and this is now what I teach um, and so passionate about, is I ended up stuffing my intuition for years. Like little signs would come in and I thought I needed to be a good Christian wife and I needed to you know, stand by my man and I would just stuff it. There, I was getting messages like, don't speak up. I mean, actually at one point, the Braves front office came to me, um, knocked on my door and told me, we need you not to say a word about any of this. You're going to disrupt the season. They were trying to get in the World Series. I mean, there was so much going on behind the scenes that no one knows about. There was just a ton of corruption and there was just a lot more um, than I'm going to mention here, but just a lot of corruption going on behind the scenes. And so those of us that were married to that, like you, you're holding it and you're not allowed to talk about it. And so again, like I'm, I'm living this illusion. And so, I mean, to tell you the truth, Robin, when we ended up getting divorced, even though I kicked him out once I found out about like multiple, multiple women and I found out about another pregnancy, um, I ended up never filing for divorce. Like I couldn't do it. And he eventually moved in with his next wife and, and filed for divorce. But, you know, that's a really important part of the story because, you know, later I learned when I was in my doctorate program, I was studying trauma and um, trauma therapy because I, I just dove into what had healed me. And I just wanted to, part of me going back to school is I wanted to understand like what happened to me mentally. Like I don't understand what that was about. And so I took all these courses and studied things that I wanted to understand and being trauma being one of them. And I turned the page one day and I saw this thing called the cycle of abuse in one of my textbooks. And I, in my desk, sat there at Georgia State University and I was like, oh my God, this is a thing? Like I never knew it had a name. And I saw my childhood. I saw what my mom lived through. I saw what I lived through. And it was on this paper and it's this very documented cycle of like, you know, you have an incident and then you have this thing flare up and this horrible thing happens and it's usually violent. And then there's a honeymoon period and then there's a loving period, which can be intensely passionate. And, and I, it's what I had been living and what I grew up with. And so I had this aha moment where I was like, I'm not alone. Oh my God, this is actually has a name and I wasn't doing this, but I'm, I'm not crazy. This is actually, and, and here's the reason why people do it. So I learned about the human, you know, the human heart, the human psyche. It informed me later as I went on with my studies. But the biggest thing that I learned and then I came out with it, even though I repeated it a couple of times because I did get remarried and divorced again. Um, now I'm so strong on it is to listen to your intuition and know that your gut feeling and your truth is the most important thing for you, no matter what anyone else says or what it, it might seem to cost you. Because giving up a relationship can be extremely difficult. Like your intuition is, is paramount. And it is your spirit's voice telling you which direction to go. And it is always right. And it may take you a long time, but it is always right for you. So what practice do you have to listen to that intuition? Is it meditation? Is it prayer? Is it just quieting your mind, breathing? How do you do it? So I learned to, to tap in. Um, I've been taught to follow my breath. So yes, I do all of the above that you just mentioned. But I've learned to do it pretty quickly now. It, it took me a while of just practicing. So what I do is I ask myself, I say, Karin, you know, what do you really want here? And when you ask somebody that, like my clients 100% across the board, whenever I ask them, you know, what do you want? Their immediate answer is always, I don't know. Like we just say that immediately because we think like that's just an impulse response. So I teach people just to stop and you, I say, okay, like for me, Karin, what do you really want? What do you know or what do you know to be true? What do you want or what do you know? And then immediately you'll be like, I don't know. And then I'll follow my breath. And so I go down. So our soul spirit um, intuitive place is kind of down around, like just under our heart, above our stomach, kind of in our, it's our core, our soul spot. And I'll just say again, Karn, what do you really want? And I'll listen to my breath. 
And I kind of do like, um, the image is like swiping, like on your phone, you swipe everyone else's opinions out of the way. You swipe what society wants. You swipe what your spouse wants. You swipe what your mom wants. You just swipe all of those other voices out of the way. And I follow my breath and I go down to my place of wisdom. And I don't let myself think about it. In other words, analyze it. Because when you analyze it, that's your monkey mind bringing up all your old narratives. And so I, I've learned to clear out the voices and the old narratives. And by the third time I say, Karn, what do you really want? Boom. The answer comes up immediately from my spirit, from my soul, um, my gut. It's before I have a chance to, to go back and run it through you know, all that circuitry in my brain, which is from childhood, which is based in fear and blah, 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 blah. So I trust that voice. So even now, like even if it's just about where to go to dinner or just a simple question, I know like I can get there really quickly now. I'll just get quiet for a second. I'll say, what do you want? Boom, the answer comes. And so here's what I've learned, Rob. Actually, the answer is just trust it. It's, it's, it's not like getting rid of it and analyzing it. It's just trust the first thing that comes up. And that to me has been the key. Wow, that was so good. I loved every part of that from swiping to asking. It's a simple question. What do you really want? Um, wow. Okay. That was that was really, really good. I was actually doing it while you were describing it. That was really good. Um, I actually took notes on some I things. Love it. I, yeah, I know. I've heard you talk good. about wanting to tap into your intuition more. So I'm glad, I love it because it's, it's my passion right now. And it's, yeah, it takes practice, but yes. once you get it, it's a freaking superpower. And we all have it. It's not just me. I mean, we've all got it. Yeah, you're born with it. Yeah, really is. Okay, I have a couple more questions on the Chipper Jones story, and I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna stay there very long. But there are a couple of things that are in my mind. The first one is most people have, you know, never had something like this happen to them at this magnitude, particularly in the public eye. Let alone, you know, having a former spouse like yours did write a book about it. How were you able to get yourself through that period? Mm, you know, no one's ever asked me about this, but I'm so glad you did because it was so painful. He, um, he actually, when we were getting divorced, he wrote a, a really quick autobiography. So that book I knew like in my mind, but here's how I found out about it. So I had a, um, my book contract with, um, Penguin Random House with their division, Avery Press. And of course it was my shining moment and we were going to have one of our editorial meetings. I was with my co-author in New York and we go to get on the elevator with my agent and this huge high rise, you know, I'm in New York, I've made it. And she pushes a button and the door opens and she turns to me, my agent, Wendy Sherman. She goes, oh, I need you to know Chipper was here yesterday and he just signed a contract with Penguin. He's writing a book. And I was like, and then the door opened and I was like, you know, WTF. And yeah. um, I'm like, are you? And so I had a moment where I felt really betrayed, honestly, because I was like, my freaking publisher just signed a fucking contract with my ex-husband. Like, what are you? What are you talking about? And so we had to process through it. And of course, you know, it, it was a different um, department in within Penguin. There's dozens of departments that focus on different subject matter. But so I had to work through it then. And then um, I was on spring break with my kids. I was in the pain at the pain handle in Florida, and this would be, I guess, two yeah, two years ago in the spring. And the book came out and I had friends that had it and they started screenshotting me the pages. And I'm, I mentioned 50 something times um, in the book. And I will tell you, Rob, I would say 80 to 90% of it was complete inaccurate, completely inaccurate. Really, a lot of it was just flat out uh, lies. And so I had, so here's the, that was the human answer. That was my human experience. So here's what I had to do. I had to dive into a spiritual recalculation of the experience. So like right now I can feel my heartbeat beating faster. I can feel myself like wanting to like expose, right? That's my human, human side, spiritual side, deep breath. Okay, Karin, you want to go and like get on a loudspeaker and tell the world all the things he did because he's making you out to be pretty bad right here. 
Okay. So I know about vibration and I know about intent and I know that low intent is, has a very low vibration. And if you go with a low intent, a low vibrational motive, you're going to get that in return. Okay. So even though my motive, like I actually called a bunch of attorneys, I was going to sue, uh, not sue him. I was just going to ask for the books to be stopped printed. I was going to like approach my publisher. Like I had all these things, I had all these attorneys that wanted, you know, of course my business. And I sat back and I did a lot of prayer and I'm like, what is your intent, Karen? Like if your intent is revenge, then you're just going to get something very low vibrational, which would have been a really bad experience back. It's a boomerang effect. Like it's going to come back. You can call it karma. You can call it whatever you want. I didn't want to recreate bad karma in that cycle because we had cycled through so much. So I sat there staring at all these attorneys' ideas of how we could ruin him and, and my human side saying, you know, you could go and tell all this stuff. And my spirit side was just like, yeah, but Karin, then you're you're redo, you're restarting again. And so I keep going back to the same process I just told you. Okay, Karin, I sit and I'm like, what is your intent? If the motive here at all is revenge or at all is just exposed. And here's actually what's under revenge is shame. So shame and guilt are the lowest vibrational places you can be. And if your motive is ever to shame somebody, what you're going to get back um, vibrationally or energetically in your life is going to be at that same level. So I know to stay away from anything that would shame him. So I'm being very, very careful right now that I'm staying in a heart-centered place and that um, I'm not going there. So I know that was a long answer, but it's been a very long process. I no, that was actually, that was a beautiful answer because what I did was I took a note that said, what is the intent? So not only are you asking yourself, what do you really want in doing that sort of swipe thing that you described, you're also, you're also asking yourself, what is the intent? Because if the, the intent is anything less than positive or noble, then you have to do a gut check with yourself and say, you know what? I don't think my intent is really good here. So I love that. How would you describe what the illusion of happiness and wealth is as it relates to being married to a professional athlete? So like, you know, every 20-year-old girl I know or, or, or I can remember back in those days when I was in that age range, they all love, they just wanted to marry a professional athlete, right? They have this illusion of what that is going to be like. Can you sort of speak to that a little bit? Oh, for sure. Well, I do want to say when I met Chipper, he was not famous. He was in the minor leagues. So the, the beautiful silver lining was I got to spend three years in, and you have no idea if they're going to make it. He was making like 15 grand a year, like peanuts. Mm. And we were living in like, you know, apartments with like 10 other guys. And actually that was the fun time. So I just do want to say I met him before, but you're right. Once fame came and like everything changed. And so here's what I love. Like you talked about lessons coming out of it. I've been, I've lived behind the velvet rope. I've lived behind the velvet curtain. I know the illusion of wealth. Therefore, like even though I do appreciate nice things and nice travel, I know that it's not a panacea. I know that with wealth comes its own um, host of problems. And I know it comes its own host of stress, especially when the wealth is being like when you're in the environment or back then, okay, so we're talking about in the 90s. This is before the internet, thank goodness, before thank cell phones. God, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, so there was a lot of discrepancies going on. There was a lot of very um, troubling things that were happening that no one knew about it. So, you know, there's this money being thrown at you, these nice purses and whatever. But here is the word that I will put on it. It was insatiable and it was so separate from the rest of the world. I have never been lonelier. And I know looking in like all the people, I mean, I, I've had so many people over the years, and this is much fewer than have been supportive, but people look at it and they're like, well, but yeah, how nice for you that you had a few million dollars and easy for you to say, and like life seems like it should be perfect once you, you know, pass that seven figure mark. And 
I will say it caused so much separateness. I felt like I couldn't relate. So I was in my 20s. Like I was super young. I didn't know how to handle that much money. And then on top of it, you know, everybody wanted a piece of us. So everybody had a son or a grandson or a grandmother or an aunt that Chipper was their favorite player. And so everywhere you went, it's like people were just nibbling at you, taking pieces of you. You couldn't eat uh, at a restaurant. You couldn't go to a movie. Every concert we went to, it turned into the Chipper show. Like it was... It was every day, everywhere. So you end up spending a lot of private time at home. And, you know, and he was also, you know, doing his own thing. So he was gone a lot. The time I didn't, I, I didn't come to the truth that he was actually, you know, having all these affairs, but he, he hunted. And so I spent a lot of time alone and it got so bad because I had such an experience of separateness. So now that I've had my awakening and I'm on the other way on the other side of it, I look back at that and I'm like, gosh, the things I didn't know now that I have this experience of oneness and I understand how detrimental isolation, whether you're in a trailer park or a giant home, to be honest, here's something that I say to people all the time. When you turn those lights off, it doesn't matter if you're in a trailer park or if you're in a giant house. When those lights are off and you're sitting in the dark, if you're depressed and you're in a horrible relationship, like that sadness feels the same for both people, whatever the separateness is that's separating you from your own heart. And so for me to have gone through, I mean, it, it pulls up so much emotion in me to talk about. I feel so sad for that 27, 28-year-old girl that was so disconnected. Now I know where to reach, but at the time, like I just want to go back and just rock her and hold her because I know the answers now. But it, it, I tell you what, it, it completely changed me. Look at those lessons and how you can use them to help people at this point in your life. You know, you said it earlier, um, you are a smart girl. You uh, for sure are smart. You graduated uh, Wesleyan. Uh, you went on, you got your master's degree in professional counseling and in 2008, you got your freaking PhD. I mean, you know, this is amazing at what has come out of the story that we just went through. What was the motivation behind getting those degrees? Well, it's changed. So the motivation at first was from a place of watch me. Because when I went through that litigation out of that divorce, it was an extremely painful um, litigation. I mean, there were words said to me like, you're a detriment to his career. You'll be nothing without him. Like it was very um, debilitating. Um, anyone that's been through long litigation um, is nodding their head right now because it was actually the worst part of all of it. Um, so anyway, I'm coming out of that. And um, I had someone say to me one time, I was in a depressed, I was getting therapy and she had also divorced. Um, by the way, that 95 World Series team, I think 90% of us got divorced. Like it was a train wreck. So I'm funny. not even kidding. And so I ended up, and one of them, um, Susie Mordecai, she was married to Mike Mordecai and they got divorced. And she at the time had gone back to interior design school. I just wrote about this yesterday and I watched her going to school and I was like, how do you have the mental capacity to do this right now? And she said, Karin, I'm going to tell you, the time is going to pass anyway, and I want to be really proud of how I spent this time. And that put a switch in me that I was like, oh my God, you're right. Like I can sit here and be depressed, but I didn't know where to go. So what I did was, yes, I would have days where I would still stay home and cry. I decided to volunteer first. So I didn't know where to turn. I, before I had taught school, so I, I had wanted to have kids for years and I was unable to conceive and I went through all this infertility and I could not go back and teach young kids because I basically had like PTSD around children. I couldn't, I was so traumatized. I didn't have my own kids that I, I just couldn't. So I didn't know what to do. Like, I know that sounds deep, but it really, it, it's, it was my experience. So I was like, I have to work with adults. I don't know what that looks like. So I went back and I started volunteering at the Ronald McDonald house in Atlanta and it was a baby step, but it was a God led baby step. 
And I realized I'm really good at giving people compassion. And then my therapy therapist at the time was like, Karin, you're doing therapy with all your friends. Why don't you become a therapist? I had never considered it in my life. So at first I was like, I'm going to go and get a degree. What my rocket fuel was at the time was watch me. Like I was looking back at the people who had hurt me and I was like, watch me. I'm going to go and prove to you all that I'm not this person that you've painted me to be. I'm going to prove how smart I am. But as time went on, I was like, I am really being fed by this and I'm really good at it. And I was academically much different than I'd been in my undergrad. And I was, you know, I I had a 4.0 coming out of both of those programs. And I'm super freaking proud of that because I discovered a side of myself um, that had been buried. It, It was, it was a beautiful process. And it's to this day, like when I'm having a bad day and when I'm struggling or I've had a breakup or whatever, like I know my work is what fulfills me and what and what will ground me again. So I immediately, after I cry, <laughs> will go back to my computer. And if I just spend an hour writing or working on something or researching, like I am back to center. So it's just become, um, it's become my rocket fuel now itself. I love it. All right. I want to switch gears a little bit and I want to talk about fulfillment. I want to start this section off with Burning Man. You were raised by a conservative evangelical church with a mom who ultimately wound up becoming a pastor. How did that Atlanta Southern girl find herself in The Burning Man? (laughs) Oh, I love this. I love The Burning Man topic because honestly, now that I'm I'm in my 40s and I've come into such a new level of awareness and I love shocking people now, like it's just funny because I used to be so conservative and I always had a fire in me. I mean, I'm a Leo and you know, my parents were scared I think to death of this like fiery side of me, they actually sent me to Wesleyan was an all girls school. Like I didn't even have a choice. I got an academic scholarship, but I wanted to go to Georgia. I wanted to go party. And they were like, did everything they could (laughs) to tame me. Of course, you know, it it eventually came out, but what, you know, the burning man experience for me um, was I had a spiritual awakening in 2014 after a series of events happened. I started having a bunch of um, paranormal experiences and I started tapping into um, spirituality. And here I come from this clinical background, this conservative Christian background. And, you know, I, I went to this, this phase where I was like, I'm not getting the answers that I want, like all the shit that had gone on. And there's much more that we're not covering. There was um, some pretty traumatic deaths that had gone on. And of course, my second marriage was falling apart. And I mean, there was so much that I, I just couldn't find in the traditional faith that I'd been raised in. Like the answers just weren't satisfying my soul. So I started diving into spirituality and diving into um, reasons that were based on like soul contracts. And I started just understanding things that totally changed me from a whole new level of awareness. It's like a whole nother dimension of spirituality. So you know, where Burning Man comes in is I started just really wanting to experience things that looked nothing like my childhood. And I wanted to do things that just like broke me open, that scared the crap out of me, but that I was like, oh yeah, like I want to do it because it was meaningful. So Burning Man, I wanted something that was just like, I'd gone through this explosive change and I started learning how to manifest what I wanted. And I was like, I somehow Burning Man pops up on my computer one day and I'm like, I, I have some other friends that have gone and I'm like, Oh yeah, like I the old me never would do that, but I have the freedom right now to do it. So if I can find a way, so I told the universe, I want to find a way. I loved the experience that there was such an acceptance for everyone, no matter who they were. There's there's no exchange of money. Everyone's giving things away for free. That the experience completely shifted me. And I understood oneness more. I understood like this utopian feeling that I think we can harness at least to some percentage in our 
in our world. So I brought back with it, like living in Atlanta, you know, Rob, I know you live here. I've really come back from that. And as I've gone on and, and furthered my, my self growth, committed to helping to grow the spiritual community here and committed to just the oneness feeling. Because when we're, when we realize that we're more alike than we all different and we realize that acceptance and compassion and love really do heal like everything, it, it, it will, it completely changes who we are. So that's now what I've been really committed to now coming back to Atlanta. And it's what I'm committed to in the private work that I do. Would you do Burning Man again? Mm-hmm. I would, but I would go with, yeah, there are a few things I would do differently. Like I would go with a group of my friends that I really trusted. I was with a group of people I didn't know. They were very loving, but now I realize the importance of having your own tribe. But yeah, I totally would. I had a really, really great experience. I, I really love it. When you pull in, they say to you, welcome home. Yeah, I have friends that have been asking me for years to go, and I'm I'm not the guy that like wants to go camping because I, you know, I, I got to do my hair in the yeah, morning. Okay, don't get I mean? me wrong, like, Rob. I was in an RV that had, that had electricity <laughs> yeah. and air. Okay, I'm coming with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm coming with you next time. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So a couple of uh, as we as we sort of wrap, I want to ask you a few questions that um, sort of relate to fulfillment in sort of an abstract way. The first one is how and why did you learn German? Oh, so my mom's from Germany. She immigrated um, when she was seven. She came on a boat through Ellis Island um, after the war, and she taught us some German at home, but it became really important. My name is actually pronounced Karin. You know, I've, mi- I've moved my middle name to my last name, but my name in German is Karin Luisa. So um, I'm 100% German, and uh, so I took it in um, high school and college. Oh, I love the way you just said that. Wow. I, that's, that is a, that's like a party trick right there. I would not have ever guessed that. In- incredible. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? You know, I am a sunshine girl. I love the islands. I mean, I, for me to be somewhere where you're in bare feet, in the sand, with a hammock, with fresh fish, with, again, freedom, total acceptance. Like I would find some island somewhere, maybe in the Bahamas, in the Caribbean, where the lifestyle was all about freedom. I would be so freaking happy. Yeah, I hear it. If you could go to only one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? You know, I'm a big sushi girl. I think that, you know, it's funny because it really ties to my previous answer. My favorite thing is fresh fish or sushi. Like I would go right back down to that island I would ask all the people that live there to cook me their like home cooked stuff. I would ask for the fish to be pulled right out of the ocean, and I would just sit gorging myself on the sand with like a, an awesome drink in my hand. Like that's what I would pick. I would pick an outdoor tiki hut somewhere in the islands. Hundred percent. Oh, you had me at tiki hut. That's <laughs> perfect. It's a little cold here in Atlanta today. What's the one thing that you've always wanted to learn, but you just haven't gotten around to yet? I've always, you know what? This is it's not going to happen because I don't have the the skill set, but to sing. Like I, I cannot sing at all, but I've always wanted just to go and improve it just a little bit so I can hang with my daughter, who's an excellent singer, um, just to improve it, just to turn it up a notch. Love it. All right, we're going to do our speed dating round. It's basically a rapid fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's kind of a first thing that comes to mind round. Okay. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? You know, it's... <laughs> It's tapping into 
knowing. Like I can read people really quickly and I also have mediumship abilities. So like I'm super good at delivering messages and it's I've been doing it more lately and it's kind of blowing people away. It's it's a big party trick, I will tell you. I love it. What's <laughs> what's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Well, you know what I'm the most afraid of is heights. I'm afraid of of course failure and all of that, but my biggest fear is heights. I was even in, um, at Chastain Park the other day here in Atlanta with my kids and I was climbing with them on top of the jungle gym. This is ridiculous. And it's like this little dome. It's like probably six feet high. And I got only that high above the earth and I started shaking. Like my kids are laughing at me. They look up and they're like, mom, are you afraid now? I'm like, I'm actually shaking. I need to get down. So yeah, I'm super afraid of heights above everything. Well, we're gonna have to come. To, we're gonna have to stay at your house for uh, for drinks because I'm on the 19th floor and it's a <laughs> long way down here. <laughs> oh, I've got to be on you. Go ahead. Yeah. What keep, what keeps you up at night? Something that you know about because I know you have your sweet little girl. What's the word? Juggling being a mom and working like there's so much. The logistics of so I'm a single mom of three kids right now. The logistics in my mind, it's like I it's like I have this um, huge like calendar in my brain as I'm laying in bed. And I'm trying to you know I've got soccer and basketball and acting and this and I got mine and I'm launching something right now. But and it's just all of the stuff trying to work the logistics out. That's what keeps me awake. For sure. Yep. Here, here. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? I wish people asked me more about my experience with my son when he was critically ill. Um, that was another, that's, I have like all these huge topics in my life, but that he spent many, many years in the hospital and it really did change me. And it's all I did for um, several years after he was born. And so that's something I don't get to talk about much. We'll have to do a part two on that. <laughs> yeah. What's the one thing that you want to get better at? You know, I want to get better at the business side of what I'm doing. I came in with a um, super freaking smart psychology, spiritual brain. Like I got my PhD and I'm, I can put anyone under the table talking about those topics. But when it comes to the business side, um, I'm really trying to understand more about like um, the entrepreneurial mindset and, and you know, business strategy. So that is my goal right now. And I work on it every day. Yeah, you'll dominate that. You'll dominate that like you dominate everything else. What book have you reread the most? You know, the book that helped me shift the most the past several years as I've awakened has been Marianne Williamson's Return to Love. It's kind of a cliff note version of A Course in Miracles, and it's super easy to read, and um, it's by my bedside, and I pick it up all the time. It's really, really good. Really, really good. Um, she's running for president now. Did you know that? I, oh, I didn't know that. I haven't watched the news much yeah. she's <gasps> She's literally running for president. OMG. It, yeah, Google it. It's crazy. What is your guilty pleasure? My guilty pleasure is definitely um, chocolate and coffee. Like every day... <laughs> I call it my Oprah moment. At four o'clock, Oprah used to come on every day. Um, and so I still at four o'clock get a cup of coffee and I get a, a biscotti that's been dipped in chocolate. And I just sit and I'm very mindful about it. Like I, I enjoy every single moment of that like hot coffee melting the chocolate on the biscotti. It's my favorite part of the day. I do it every day. <laughs> oh my God. I, you, you, you are so good at visuals right now. I am going to have that at four o'clock today and I'm going to book my flight to the Bahamas for the fish. You're really, it. really good. If you, had, if you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about, and it could really be on anything that you have a passion for, what would it be? 
You know, it's, it goes back to my answer about my son. Um, when I, my son, he admitted to the um, ICU 39 times in three years. And it was, um, it was just such intense, uh, gosh, um, again, separation from the world. But I learned so much about um, just being medically fragile and about being in the hospital. And I'm very, I've written actually several articles about this, but they're not in my work now. Like you'd have to dig to find them, but it, it would be my TED talk because it's totally off of what I teach how to, what people that are sick really need from you, like, and what people that are hurting people that are, have hospitalized family members, like what they really need from people on the outside. Cause that is something that I learned that I would not have known had I not gone through that. I love it. Last question. We're going to change things up a little bit. What one question would you like to ask me? I want to know about your voice, Rob. Like you have such a radio voice. So... <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Every time I listen to your podcast and you're like, it's Rob Murgatroyd. I'm like, you were born with that. Did you know that you had a radio voice? Like, where is this in your, in your um, chain of events that led you to, to the podcasting? You know, I wish I could answer this question because it is, it is probably, the, other than what hair product do you use, it's probably the most asked question that I get. I, I don't really know. I would say probably when I was 16, 17 years old, people would say, you have a really good voice. And I'd say, thank you. And it just has always been a part of my life um, ever since I was a kid. And I don't know why or how, but it's just one of those things that I, I, I don't know. It, I just happen to have that. And it's definitely, it's definitely a radio voice for sure because I can hear it. Well, it is. And I'm going to loop back because if you get asked that a lot, I want to ask you then going back to the beginning of our interview, what are you the most proud of that you do um, for your daughter? Where, what's your proudest father um, thing that you do as a dad? It's a really good question. I am committed to being here, to just being here. I have learned that it's not the one thing that you do on Saturday afternoon or the one thing that you the one thing that you do on Thursday nights it is just being here to hang out and sometimes hanging out looks like sitting on the floor and playing a board game sometimes it's tickling sometimes it's like we did this morning sitting uh in bed when we when uh, we woke up and she crawled in bed and we talked about the three things that she's grateful for and I'm committed to just being here, not to do this thing or that thing, but I just want to be here with her, not behind the office door, but with her. And, you know, we have some rules around that. Like when daddy's working, he's working. But for the most part, Kim and I have an agreement that it, we kind of look at it like we're two actors that are filming a movie. One of us is always home with the kid. So if like right now, Kim is in Arizona for the for five days. And so other than this this morning block where I'm doing podcasts, these the previous two days and the next three days will will be just me and her hanging out. And so I guess the answer is just being there, like literally being there for the nothing, for the nothingness of it. Because the nothingness of it for me is everything. <gasps> that's what I was going to say. That's such a great quote. The nothingness is everything. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's everything. That's so beautiful. And I know that about you just watching you guys. Um, Cause I, you know, of course watching you on Instagram and all that. And of course I know you, but and that, that is everything. You're the foundation you're laying for her and for you, you know, it goes both ways. You're both getting fed. And so I love that you shared that. That's beautiful. 
Do you have, thank you. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people that are listening? So my big passion right now and uh, the foundation of everything I'm teaching and writing goes back to knowing who you really are. And the basis of that is trusting your gut. So all the things that we talked about today, I feel like so much of it came back to um, that presence within yourself. Like trust your gut. Trust the feeling that comes up from your core, no matter what anyone else says. Like know how freaking brilliant you are. And the first thing that comes up from your core that feels right, that feels in alignment with you is your answer. Um, and of course, I'd love for everyone to follow me on, on social media. But besides that, trust your gut. It, it, it changes everything. It's your soul's voice and that's it's divine wisdom. So that's your superpower. I love it. We're going to link up uh, your, uh, your social medias, social media handles, um, as well as your books and anything else that you like so everybody can make sure that they connect with you on a deeper level. So uh, on a personal note, you know, we have a, a new friendship and I just want to say um, how grateful I am for you being in our lives. My wife had uh, lunch with you and she said, Rob, you, you have to have her on the show. She's amazing. And you are. And I'm so grateful um, that you're here and anything that I can do for you, definitely reach out. And I'm excited to see what the future will bring for all of us. Oh, that means so much, Rob. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so blessed. I was so excited um, when I found out that you guys lived in Atlanta and um, I got to meet some other high vibe people that are changing. I mean, you're changing things. And I've loved, you know, you just had your big transition out of your um, your former life, your chiropractic life, and your yeah. business. And I can't wait to see for you like how this unfolds this year. And it's just been a pleasure to have a joined up with you guys um, that are passive across as you've gone through this transition. So you've really blessed a lot of people. And so I thank you for being, gosh, such a uh, an icon of change for the world and for you to follow your dreams because you're you're influencing so many people to do the same. So thank you. I'm bowing my I'm bowing my head in prayer to you right now. Thanks, Karen. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.